Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how it shows us the way you worked to put your king on the throne of your kingdom for the security of the future of your people. Would you grant us now hearts to enthrone King Jesus, to worship him as we sit under your word. We pray that in his mighty name. Amen. The king is dead. Long live the king. It's a tradition that goes back in Europe, back into the 1400s. In 1422 in France, the switchover between Charles VI and Charles VII, it seems like a contradiction of terms. The king is dead, but long live the king. It has come to mean, while one king is dead, the kingdom is not. The next king has risen to the throne and the monarchy will continue. That tradition went down through the ages. The kingdom that started it, the kingdom of France, used it for hundreds of years. That is until it came to an abrupt, unceremonious end with King Louis XVI. This little thing called the French Revolution happened. Louis lost his crown by losing his head. And then the people shouted something quite different. The king is dead. Long live the people. See, it turns out when a king is about to step down from his throne, there's uncertainty what will happen to the kingdom. And if the kingdom is in peril, then the people within the kingdom are also. There's a very similar line that is a refrain through this passage. Long live the king. Two different people are identified, King Adonijah and King Solomon. The difference between those two kings is the difference between the security and prosperity of God's people, God's promises being secured, and the ruin of the kingdom. Last week, we left off with our narrative, with the tension rising. The kingdom was at a crossroads. There were two kings that were being contrasted with each other, old and cold King David and bold and beautiful contender to the throne, Adonijah. Who would end up sitting on the throne? Would bash, brash, beautiful Adonijah manage to seize it with might? Or would God keep his promise to put Solomon, King David's son, on the throne? Well, that's where our narrative picks up this morning. And as it carries us through, we will see through three scenes how God works in very unlikely ways to put his king, Solomon, on the throne and secure the future of the kingdom and God's people. Those three scenes are as follows. First, the palace plot. The palace plot in verses 11 through 27. Second, the king is crowned. The king is crowned in verses 28 through 40. And then finally, the party is over. The party is over in verses 41 through 53. We'll see the kingdom at a crossroads come to a crescendo as Solomon is enthroned as king. And we will see the promising future of God's people 
as the kingdom is secured under his reign. Let's begin in verses 11 through 27, the palace plot. It's not an overstatement to say that the fate of the kingdom was balanced on the edge of a knife. Would Adonijah's coup succeed? Who in the world could stop him? It seems like he has everything going his way at this point in the story. Well, there are two unlikely conspirators that God will use to put a stop to his pretending to the throne. Nathan and Bathsheba. Now, they're very unlikely people to be used by God for this. The last time they both showed up together was back in 2 Samuel. It was with, frankly, the most embarrassing moment of King David's life. It was that whole incident with Bathsheba and adultery and Uriah. Would David really listen to these two? Could these two really stem the tide when everything looked like it was turning toward Adonijah's way? Well, we see there in verse 11 that Nathan, the faithful servant to King David, to the kingdom, and ultimately to God himself, he is not going to go down without a fight. Nathan comes in to Bathsheba and he lets her know of the peril they are in. He says that if we don't stop Adonijah from wearing the crown on his head, then we will likely lose our heads. So the good news though is that Nathan is an experienced politician and prophet and he has a shrewd plan. A twin salvo that they will fire off that maybe, just maybe, might rouse slumbering King David. Mount rouse him from his deathbed into action. The plan goes something like this. Bathsheba would go into his presence. She would use all of her clout, all of her history with David, all of her influence to remind him of the oath David had sworn to her, as well as to inform him of what Adonijah was doing, the peril that the kingdom and his descendants were in. Right as David was considering that, the second salvo would hit. That would be Nathan himself coming in and confirming everything that happens. That's the plan laid out in verses 11 through 14. In 15 through 27, we see it actually pulled off, and it's pulled off to perfection. It, it's a, a master stroke in both integrity as well as shrewd wisdom and how to influence someone with power. Bathsheba comes in. And she immediately shows respect to David. She bows before him. She pays homage to him. She does not in any way try to usurp his authority. And yet, even as she does so, she is assertive. She reminds him of the oath that David swore to her in verse 17. My Lord, you swore to your servant, that's by Sheba, by the Lord your God, saying, Solomon your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne. She reminds him of his oath before God, and then she even goes further. She tells him the stakes of the moment in verse 20. She says, all of Israel is watching you to see who you will appoint to reign after you. Bathsheba, in a moment that required great courage, she rises to the moment. She speaks truth to David. She does so respectfully and with proper honor. And yet she does not waver. 
David, you must rule in this moment. Right as all that is going on, Nathan comes in. His timing is perfect. In verse 22, we see that even as she was still speaking, speaking, he comes in. And immediately he confirms everything that Bathsheba has said. Yes, Adonijah has decided to claim the throne for himself. Yes, he has powerful allies. And yes, he is even, Nathan adds, having those people declare he is already king. Long live King Adonijah, they are declaring in verse 25. But at the top and tail, the beginning and end of Nathan's encounter with David is the crux of what he wants to get across. It's a question for David. In verse 24 and 27, he asks, did you say that Adonijah should be king? Is this really what you wanted to have happen, David? Adonijah and Bathsheba very shrewdly inform David of the potential coup and question his leadership or lack thereof at this moment challenging him to be the king that God has on the throne until his time is up. Now there are some that look at this twin salvo approach to David and they say that frankly it has a whiff of manipulation to it. Uh, for one, we don't have any record of David telling Bathsheba that Solomon would be king. Is, did Nathan just make that up? Also, I mean, the, the timing of it all is awfully convenient. It was, frankly, engineered the way this would play out, and it played out exactly the way they planned it. And yet, I, I don't think that's fair either to Bathsheba or to Nathan. Now, I think they actually are living out what Jesus would describe to New Testament Christians, that you are supposed to be both innocent as doves and yet wise as serpents. Everything they say is true, and yet they are shrewd in the way they seek to influence David. One cross-reference in Chronicles helps us to see that they are not lying to David. This is 1 Chronicles 22, 9 to 10. Here, David is describing a word that God gave him that Solomon, in fact, would be the son to reign. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies. For his name shall be Solomon. And I will give him peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name. He shall be my son and I will be his father and I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. What we see here are not two manipulative people trying to save their own skin. What we see are two faithful servants who believe the promises God has given about his kingdom and will use every ounce of strength they have to bring those promises to paths. Motivated by a trust in the very words of God, Nathan and Bathsheba, they try and rouse slumbering David. The question is, will it work? Well, that brings us to the second scene, verses 28 through 40. We see the king is crowned. The king is crowned. 
Last week we saw, frankly, a hard image of David to stomach. David's a, such a easy figure in the Bible to empathize with. So tender in heart, has obvious flaws, and yet finds so much grace along the way. Last week we saw mighty King David, old and cold. We saw him inactive and ineffective as king. We saw him unable to rule his kingdom, which has given rise to Adonijah's coup. And yet, as it turns out, David isn't done serving the Lord just yet. God has one more mighty act for this mighty king. I was reminded of the way that David is roused to action from the J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. Someone in my small group mentioned this part of it to me. It's actually my favorite part in the whole trilogy. There's a king of Rohan named King Theoden, who, like David, has grown old and ineffective. Gandalf rouses him from his magical slumber, and yet Theoden is a diminished shadow of his former self all throughout the books. That is until the very end. King Theoden has one last ride left in him. Listen to the way Tolkien describes it. At the sound of that, uh, at that sound, the bent shape of the king sprang suddenly erect. Tall and proud he seemed again. And rising in his stirrups, he cried in a loud voice, more clear than any that had ever been heard by mortal man. Arise, arise, riders of Theoden. Fell deeds awake, fire and slaughter. Spear shall be shaken, shield shall be splintered. A sword day, a red day, ere the sun rises. Ride now, ride now, ride to Gondor. The last ride of King Theoden. A king roused to action one last time. I can't help but think that Tolkien might have had David in mind when he wrote that passage because that's exactly what we see happen to David. He may not be sitting on a horse, but he is roused to defend the kingdom with all the strength he has left. In a moment, David is transformed from ineffective and inactive to bold and decisive. We see him first call Bathsheba straight to him right there in verse 28. He tells her that he will make good on the oath he has sworn before God. And here's the key point. Solomon will rule. He will reign after David. Bathsheba can't do anything except bow down and give thanks to the mighty king that sits before her. After that, he springs into action. He calls all of his cabinet together, Zadok, Nathan, Benaiah, and he tells them there is no time to waste. There is, the kingdom must be saved and they have a plan that must spring into action. We see that plan coming after verse 32. David gives them step-by-step instructions. They're going to take Solomon, they're going to put him on the royal mule, and they're going to ride him in front of everyone so they can see him. They're going to take him to the tent. 
They are going to anoint him with oil, not just from the priest, but also from the prophet. So it would be known to all of Israel that Solomon is God's anointed king. And then they are going to coronate him. They're going to take him. They're going to put the crown on his head. They will seat him on David's golden throne. They will blow the trumpet and then the climactic moment, the climax of this whole chapter. The elves of Israel will yell, long live King Solomon. The finishing touch to establish his authority. In verses 38 through 40, we see David's counsel kick into action and do everything he has said down to the letter. They put Solomon on the royal mule. They anoint him by the priest and the prophet. They put the crown on his head. They put him on the throne. They blow the trumpet and all of Israel yells, Long live King Solomon. And don't you love that note in verse 40? There's such jubilation, there's such rejoicing that the earth was split by their noise. Turns out it really happened. God put his man on his throne. And the climax of the drama tips us in that what is ahead is a glory even greater than mighty King David and his era of prosperity for God's people. In verse 37, we see a, a summary of sorts of what's about to come. Benaiah, as he is agreeing to what David has said, says this of Solomon's reign. As the Lord has been with my Lord the king, even so may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my Lord King David. You can almost see the brightness of the golden age ahead. God's people's future is secure. His king is sitting on the throne. There's just one question left. What to do about that pretender, Adonijah? Well, that brings us to the third and final scene, verses 41 through 53. The party is over. The party is over. Adonijah and his coup crew are in the midst of their celebration thinking this is the moment to revel in when suddenly their party comes to an abrupt end. They hear an odd noise. A trumpet? One of them asks, what, what's that noise? What's going on in the city? And right at that moment, a messenger arrives. Now there's a, a bit of narrative irony occurring here. We know something about what's happened that Adonijah does not know. Adonijah has already been defeated. He has already been exposed as a pretender to the throne. All that we're waiting for is for him to realize it. He's like Wiley e. Coyote, having run off the cliff, his feet continuing to move in thin air, until he realizes there's no ground beneath him. Well, that ground falls out from under him in verses 42 through 48. The messenger comes and tells him in detail the bad news. The crux of it is David has put Solomon on the throne. 
He tells them that twice. And in between, he tells them all the details. The, the royal donkey, the oil anointing, putting him on the throne with the crown, the trumpet being blown. By the way, that's what you heard. And yes, they are declaring, long live King Solomon. Which means, in all likelihood, there won't be long to live for pretending King Adonijah. Well, you love the way that that party ends and everyone so quickly decides, maybe we hitched our cart to the wrong horse. Adonijah's powerful coup crew, they all disappear into the woodwork. Verse 49, every one of them trembles and runs away. Adonijah, he's in for a humbling himself. He makes a beeline for the, ta the tabernacle and he grabs hold of the altar of the tabernacle and says he won't let go until Solomon promises to spare his life. He's probably hoping for something like what the law talks about with cities of refuge that Solomon wouldn't dare put him to death in the presence of the tabernacle itself. But really, it's amazing how in just a one short, one, one chapter, we see bold, beautiful Adonijah go from seeming like he was invincible to now having his face in the dirt. Solomon, it turns out, will spare his life. His first royal act is one of mercy. But there is such a big caveat. For Adonijah's life to be spared, he must bow before the true king. The pretender to the throne must prostrate himself before the true son of David, the one who will sit on the throne as promised. So, we see against all the odds, God put his king on his throne and that means that God's people know that God's promises are true and their future is secure. What a story. What is, what is it that we as Christians, we who live in the, under the new covenant, what is it that we can learn from this story? Allow me to give you three lines of application this morning. First, remember God's pattern of using unlikely instruments. Remember God's pattern of using unlikely instruments to advance his kingdom. Nathan and Bathsheba, they had an association of shame in David's mind for sure. They would be right to wonder, would David really want to see us? Would he really listen to us? And yet God so often uses unlikely people in unlikely ways at unlikely times, at pivotal points in advancing his kingdom. For those of us living in the midst of a pandemic, who maybe feel like there's so little that we are able to do, there's a word for us here, is there not? It may feel like there's not much you can do to influence the advance of the kingdom from your own home in social isolation. But friend, maybe, maybe this is precisely the time that God intends to use you, to use you to advance the kingdom in ways you never imagined. Maybe there's an estranged family member that 
hasn't been willing to speak with you for a long time. And maybe your, your different attempts to talk with them about Jesus have been shut down. Maybe right now, all of this would open them up, open their heart, so that you can introduce them to King Jesus. Would you not be fearful of how small you may feel, of how insignificant your strength may seem? Would you trust that the God that uses the most unlikely people might just use you to advance his kingdom even, even during this pandemic? I wonder if our small groups during this season might be especially useful. I mean, I know I have found even this week encouragement through the Zoom call from members of our small group. I wonder if maybe you're, you might find some encouragement with the thought that God might use a prayer you pray. He might use a, something he showed you in scripture this week to encourage and push forward the spiritual life of the members of your small group. What if all of this, it turns out, is a moment that God has ordained for you, for you, to be used for his kingdom? I think now, at a time when life is disrupted, is a great time for people to be considering whether the normal of life is what God intends for them. Could it be that God is using the disruption of the pandemic to maybe this morning even call someone to the ministry? Might you find that God could use you in ways you never imagined, friend? Remember the pattern of God using unlikely people. You know, last week, I think we rightly saw the diminished King David and learned a lesson about how quickly our strength and youth can evaporate. And yeah, I love the way that that is balanced out this week by the mighty David finding one last burst of strength to serve the Lord. And I think there is a, a word here for our senior saints. Very often, it's a difficult season of life for Christians to live through. You're not able to do some of the things you used to be able to do. You sometimes wrestle with feelings of being forgotten or useless. Would you remember, if God has you breathing, if he has you on this earth another day, then he's not done with you yet. I heard a, a story of a pastor this Easter named Buddy Diggins. He's a senior saint himself, faithful preacher, He'd lived through a very difficult thing. He lost his wife just months past. He got up on Easter and he ended his sermon with a bit of personal testimony. Here are his words. He had been wrestling with the Lord. Why is it that I am left? It bothered my heart. Here's my wife that we wanted to go together and now she's gone. I said, Lord, why am I left? And the answer came to my heart. I've left you here to do nothing more than to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ that you've been preaching for 55 years. So I stand today, this resurrection day, to tell you Jesus Christ is alive. He's helped me, he's blessed me, and I praise his holy name 
today. Pastor Buddy Diggins, God wasn't done with him. He had to preach the gospel. And after he did that Easter Sunday morning, Buddy Diggins went back into his office. And then he went to be with his wife and with the Lord in eternity. My dear senior saints, none of us know precisely how many days God has us here on this earth. But we should live with the knowledge if we're still here, then God's not through with us. God uses unlikely people as his instruments to advance his kingdom. Second line of application, trust God's promises to advance his kingdom. That we all need to learn to trust God's promises to advance his kingdom. Nathan and Bathsheba, they were not acting just out of self-interest or self-preservation. They were acting because they believed the promise that God had given to David and had, that they had learned through David's oath. For Christians, we need to ask ourselves, what promises of God drive our obedience? What promises of God lead us to take bold steps for the kingdom of God? Maybe the promise that Christ will build his church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. Maybe the promise that Jesus will be with us until the end of the age. Maybe the promise that his spirit will be at work, that he will guide us into all truth. Maybe the promise that he is working all things for our good to conform us to the image of Jesus. There are so many promises in scripture that are instructive to the Christian's heart. The question is, friend, will you treasure them in your heart so that they can motivate you to act to advance the kingdom? And right now we're living at a time when all of our rhythms are disrupted. I feel it just like the rest of you. I know it's easy to slide into unhealthy habits. Let me challenge you. Guard your time reading the word of God. Guard your time soaking in the promises of the Bible. If they're not in your heart already, they can't motivate you to act boldly on behalf of the kingdom. Now more than ever, at a time when everything else seems to be moving, we need to go back to the word that was given to us from our eternal King Jesus. And we need to live by every promise of God that is yes in Christ Jesus. I was so encouraged by the testimony of one of our members, Mitch Myers. He was dealing with cancer, got to a very low point along the way physical and emotional and spiritual battle going on. And then he spoke of the way that all of the words of scripture that he had memorized and meditated on over the years came flashing back to him one night. And the way God used his word to push him forward in obedience and to comfort him in that moment. Brothers and sisters, let's be people that hang on every promise of God's word so that we too might be useful servants, even unlikely servants of the kingdom of God. Third line of application, most central of all, make sure your bowing 
to the right king. Make sure you are bowing to the right king. It sure seemed like Adonijah was going to be the king. His crew must have thought that they had hitched their wagon to the right horse until it was, the party was over. There are lots and lots of petty princes in this world that will vie for your allegiance. Remember that none of them, at the end of the day, none of them will be seated on the throne. Social standing, political power, career advancement, sexual freedom, all of these princes offer you promises that they can't keep. The comfort, the security, the pleasure, it's all a mirage. One day, the true king will arrive and it'll be obvious that they were pretenders to the throne. So friends, learn from the example of Adonijah and his coup crew. Learn from their mistake. Bow before the true king and live without regret for eternity. Solomon was the true king that would rise. Those in this narrative that bowed before him, they were on the right side of history. But friend, realize that one greater than Solomon has arisen. A true king, the only king worthy of our devotion. Matthew chapter one tells us tells us of another son of David that would come. It opens with these words, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Then in verse six, it tells us of his lineage and Jesse, the father of King David, the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. You see, the brothers and sisters, the true son of David, Jesus, one day he rode on a donkey into the crowds that were cheering him in Jerusalem. He was anointed as king, not with, by a priest, not by a prophet. He was anointed with the very spirit of God that came upon him at his baptism. He had a coronation but a very different sort of coronation. He didn't wear a glorious jeweled crown. He wore one adorned with thorns. And the throne he rose up to was of all things a cruel Roman cross. There were people on that day that said the king of Israel, king of the Jews, and it would be right on that day to say, the king is dead, for Jesus gave up his life on that cross. But what good news it is that three days later, it would be true that long live the king. King Jesus, the eternal king, rose from the grave and inherited a throne far higher than the throne that Solomon sat on. A throne in heaven itself at the right hand of his father. And King Jesus, he is a good king. As Solomon's first act was to show mercy, Jesus shows even more mercy 
to those that have tried to steal his rule. Mercy by giving up his own life to pay for their rebellion. So this morning, realize that we have the opportunity this day to bow down before the true king and live without regret for eternity. I wonder this morning if you're tuning in and you're not a Christian, I wonder if you have bowed down to King Jesus in your heart, yourself. All of us, whether we realize it or not, have rebelled against Jesus' rule. The fact that you have lived your life without considering him, without worshiping him, The fact that you have done what seemed right to you under whatever framework you have operated under, that is rebellion, spiritual rebellion against the true king. And friend, this King Jesus, one day he will come and end all the parties of this world. One day he will come back to judge everyone, living and dead. The question for you, friend, is on that day will you know him? As the king you have bowed before in joy, the king you have trusted with your very soul, or will that day be the day of your eternal sorrow? Friend, if you don't know where you stand with Jesus, the king of the whole world and the world to come, today would you clarify who you're bowing before? If you don't know how to do that, you can reach out to us. We would love to help you take a step to turn from your sin and turn toward King Jesus. You'll never regret it if you do. For all of us that are Christians, we need to ask ourselves, who can compare to the king of ages, the king immortal, the king who sits on the eternal throne of David? Who can compare to the king we worship, King Jesus? Maybe during this pandemic, you have felt your heart slip a little bit. You've lost a little bit of your joy, a little bit of your focus on the glory of King Jesus. Brothers and sisters, this morning, would you remember? Would you remember the glorious truth that yes, it's true, the king died, but it's also true, long live the king. And that means you get to worship him forever. Dr. Phil Riken, commenting on this passage, said that the work of all Christians is to enthrone Jesus in our worship. That kingdom work for every Christian is to enthrone Jesus in our worship. Maybe that's the unlikely thing God is doing in your heart today. Brothers and sisters, God is faithful to his promises. He has put his king on his throne and he has secured the future for his people. And that means all glory be to Christ our king. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, you are the true king, the heir of mighty King David's golden throne. You are the one that has come to usher in an era of 
peace and prosperity without end. You and only you can reign over God's people. Lord Jesus, would you help us to bow before you, to even in our worship enthrone you today. Even as we sing the words of this next song, would you confirm in our hearts, yes, you the king were dead, and yet long live the king. You are alive forevermore. Help us to worship you now with our song, and help us to worship you in our acts of obedience to your promises. We pray all these things in your mighty name. Amen.